Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, which has a bit of a personal element to it. I come from southern England, and near me is a lovely area of the world called the New Forest, which actually dates back hundreds of years. There are trees, but much of it is low-lying heathland with gorse bushes, and I walk there often growing up. You would often see horses grazing, or a group of deer would cross the road. Not that far away from where I grew up is Ealing, next to the sea, which has a working mill. Ealing Tide Mill is the only original tide mill in the country, still open and working, as it has done for centuries. Situated at the edge of Southampton Water in southern England, Ealing Tide Mill dates back to the 11th century. It's been lovingly restored and uses the tides to drive the mill and turn the wheat into flour, which is sold commercially. Some of the flour goes off to a bakery so that it can be turned into bread and resold by Ealing Tide Mill. Ruth Kerr is the community engagement officer at what is called the Ealing Tide Mill Experience. Right now, in front of us on the left, we've got our working water wheel. Uh, so that's the water wheel that was restored when the mill was restored to work in order as a working heritage site in the 70s. On the right-hand side, you can just see the remains of the east water wheel. So the west water wheel is the working one. The east water wheel, they're preserved remains. So we look after that side of the mill. The machinery on that side of the mill no longer works. It wasn't restored. But it's still there as a, a record, if you like, of what the mill would have looked like in the past. And it's one of the reasons that Ealing is a very rare mill. And you actually produce your own uh, flour here? We do, yeah. We make wholemeal flour and we make brown flour as well, mainly wholemeal. So it's good for you? It's absolutely lovely for you, yeah. We don't take any of the good stuff out. No, no white flour here. So you actually have here at Ealing Tide Mill, you have it made into bread to sell in your shop? We do, yeah. We, we don't have a bakery here on site, but we send our flour away to a local bakery and they send it back to us as bread. So we sell loaves of bread in our cafe and we also obviously use the bread in our own sandwiches here and on site. The Tide Mill is one of our buildings. The, the entire site is more than just the Tide Mill. The Tide Mill is the focus, but the whole site we are known as Ealing Tide Mill Experience. And can you tell me about the different components of that? Yeah, of course, yeah. Well, the Ealing Tide Mill is the jewel in our crown here. It is the, it's the focal point of our site and um, of a visit for our visitors. Over in the visitor centre, which is our other building, the visitor centre is where we actually tell the mill story. So you can step into the past in the mill and experience the mill and the, sound, the sounds and the smells and all of those things to do with historic milling. Over in the visitor centre in the discovery room, you actually get to experience the mill story. And that's quite an important part of the site for us because visitors to the mill in the past told us that they they really wanted to know more about the mill they wanted to know its story not just how it works so we actually look at the mill story and the story of the area that the mill has grown up in as well over there and of course we've got our outdoor areas as well we've got our mill pond walk so you can walk around the mill pond have, have a look at all the wildlife out there and we've got a little stretch of shoreline next to Southampton Water Goatee Beach. Now you have uh, the way that uh, the mill is based and produces its flour is two tides a day, but uh, sometimes they're not quite convenient for the miller. That's right, yes. We have two tides a day. They are not always at the same time, obviously. They move <laughs> over time. And 
because they're not always at the same time, because they move as you as you uh, move through the year, often they'll be in the middle of the night. They're not during what we call normal business hours. So in the past, Miller's business hours would have been when the tide was right. So people would have worked through the night in Ealing Tide Mill in the past. Today, we're run by the local town council. Our council hours don't really let us come in in the middle of the night and mill. So uh, we, we mill when the tide is with us and when we have a miller on site. We have a paid miller. Matt is our miller and we also have a small team of volunteer millers who support Matt so whenever we can whenever we've got one of the team here we do mill. Yes but I mean that must be I mean obviously the, it's great that you've got volunteers putting in hours but it must be quite an experience to do it at, at a traditional mill. It's quite a rare thing to be able to do now there are only a couple of tide mills left in the UK that still regularly produce flour that's that's ourselves Ealing and our friends in Woodbridge Tide Mill in Suffolk. Obviously tide mills would have been really quite a common thing in the past but to, to have tide mills that are still regularly producing flour nowadays is is really very rare right across the world so to be honest to be able to work in any historic mill whether it's a windmill a water mill a tide mill is a really special thing you're working with some fantastic machinery and you're working with the world around you rather than electricity or that kind of source of power you're working with a very natural source of power now this area the way of harnessing the tides goes back 900 years so but this what we're looking at the infrastructure here how old is it the current building was built in 1785. I say the current building because tide mills were often rebuilt every two to three hundred years. They get the very worst of the storms coming in from sea. Storms are at their most powerful when they come straight off the sea. So if you're a tide mill right on the coast like we are, you're going to get the worst weather. So it wasn't unusual to have to rebuild the mill every few hundred years. We know that from the lease. Uh, the leases that we've that we've seen for Ealing in the past. So the current mil building was built in 1785. The earliest evidence that we have for a mill here is the Doomsday Survey of 1086, where there's a reference to two mills in Ealing. We think it's highly likely that that is a reference to Ealing Tide Mill. And although it says two mills, it's not unusual for Ealing to be referred to as two mills in the past because a mill is the machinery, not the building. And of course, we have historically, we had two water wheels, each driving two sets of millstones, so two mills. And uh, looking back 900 years and now looking forward, because it's interesting that this tidal energy was harnessed. I was reading just now in the discovery room that uh, it could be in future years up to 20% of how the UK uses energy. Yeah, I mean, people... Or creates energy, even. People have been looking at uh, water as a, a form of power, especially tidal power, for some years. Now, obviously, there's a, a big project in Cardiff that could be supplying a lot of energy. Tidal power, obviously, it's a very natural form of power. I am obviously biased, but in terms of a mill, it's a much more reliable source of power than water or wind. Water mills are reliant on a, a decent amount of rain to keep a river flowing. With the tide, we know how much tide is going to come in and out regularly. And again, wind power, you're reliant on, on something that's just not that reliable. We're not always going to have wind, and we're not always going to have wind when we want it. And even today, when we look at wind turbines, they can't always operate in very high winds. So relying on tidal power is a, a really good source of, of power. It's a good way to harness some energy.
So when Matt the Miller is getting going, when he doesn't have to work at midnight, how does he trap the water? Because you have these two tides, uh, but you have some sort of sluice gates or something? We do, yes. When the tide comes in towards us, we're, we're basically, the mill is sitting on a bridge. That bridge is a, a causeway now. It's also a dam. So when the tide comes in towards us, it flows through some hatches in the bridge and fills up the mill pond behind us, this area behind us. When the tide drops again, when it starts to drop away, that water can't escape from the mill pond because those hatches only open one way. So the force of the tide pushes them open to fill up the mill pond, but it, they, that water can't get back out again. When the tide's dropped away and we're ready to mill, we turn this wheel here. This is our sluice gate wheel. We turn this wheel and it literally lifts a gate underneath the mill and we release a head of water. We can control how high we lift the gate so we can control that head of water. The head of water comes underneath the mill and it hits the water wheel here which turns the wheel and turns the rest of the machinery. What's the wheel made out of? Our, our water wheel is um, cast iron. Historically it would have been a wooden um, water wheel so it probably sounded quite different in the past apart from anything but it's an iron one now it's from that period the industrial revolution when we were really getting quite excited about metal and, and the possibilities of metal and casting metal so the mill would have had wooden water wheels up until uh, the sort of late 1800s but you have to watch for rust these days we do i mean you can see a, a, a mill that's on a on the sea, a tidal mill has a very particular um, environment because we've got salt water environment here. So you can see a lot of our machinery, our, our metal bits and pieces have a, a bit of a coating of rust on them. So it, it, that's something that we are always monitoring and um, looking after our machinery. We've got a conservation programme um, in place that helps us care for the machinery. But yeah, we do have to keep a really close eye on everything. So you've got uh, your miller called Matt and, and some volunteers who, who come in to turn the wheel or get the wheel turned uh, by the tide to create the, the flower. But um, are you able to look back over the decades and find some previous workers who were here? We know that the last milling family, the last commercial milling family uh, at Ealing Tide Mill were the Mackerel family and they milled for a number of years, sort of three successive generations. We are in touch with a number of members of the Mackerel family. It was a big family so they've, they've got quite a lot of descendants so I'm in touch with quite a few of them and since we reopened a number of them have come as groups um, en masse to come <laughs> for visits and, and we do a little Mackerel family talk for them when they come because we're very, very fond of our Mackerel connections. So we are in touch with members of the Mackerel family um, in particular that the last commercial miller was Raymond. Raymond's oldest son, who's an, an older gentleman in his 90s now, we're still in touch with him um, and he's got some great memories of his teenage years of visiting the mill and his dad running the mill. Yes, so here we're standing in, in the mill and it's a, a day off today, so I don't know, is the tide coming in at midnight tonight? It's in at the moment, so um, <laughs> it's, it's on its way out, so we, won't, we wouldn't be able to mill till much later today at the moment because you can see the water is a fair way up the water wheel there. How do you find out about tides, computerisation, the local observatory? We actually buy our tides from the Port Authority in Southampton. They produce tide tables and we buy them in, in the box because a lot of people buy them from us locally. They want to know about the tides, especially obviously next door to us in what was a part of the mill historically is Ealing Sailing Club. Obviously the boats out here, you can see they're all members of the sailing club. So people who have boats who want to know when the tides are for, for their own sailing pleasure. So we use the tide tables. 
It's fantastic. I think that you've got this, as I say, uh, site that's been used for, for 900 years, may have been at one point just two mills, not necessarily the, the surrounding buildings. But um, when I look at Hong Kong, I mean, it's a series of islands. Do you think that we could use our tidal energy there? I don't know anything about the tides in Hong Kong, but I think there's potential to harness that power pretty much anywhere um, obviously, as long as you've got decent tides. But yeah, th there is that potential there. And we're growing in our knowledge and our understanding of how to use tidal power all the time. Historically, we would have had a lot of tidal mills around the UK. We've got a lot of coastline around the UK. It's one of those things where when a new technology comes in, like steam power, electricity, other technologies fall by the wayside. And sometimes we lose the knowledge of those technologies sometimes, which is why places like Ealing are important, because without our past, you, you don't really know where we're going in the future. But Ealing is particularly important as a tidal mill because we're a great record of exactly how we have used the tide in the past. And obviously, people are interested in that for the future again. Here at the Ealing Tide Mill Experience, you're all about learning Ruth, and, and, um, and also encouraging local children to learn. Tell me about the, the Forest School. Well, Forest School is a particular way of learning. Um, it, it's for any age group, but it's often delivered with, with uh, school-aged children. It's a particular way of learning where we take young people into a woodland environment or, or another natural environment, um, and we spend time with them there. We help them build up skills. We help them build up an enjoyment of learning in that natural environment, and it's a real benefit to them. It, it can really make children resilient learners, which is a great thing for life to be a resilient learner but in particular during those years when you're involved in classroom learning to be resilient in the classroom as a, as a young person is a really great thing it helps you persevere with learning and it helps embed learning into you so you're taking them out you're getting them to whittle sticks and whittle is sort of yeah. actually to carve to, them to, no whittling <laughs> is absolutely fine yep one of the things we might when when we're in forest school um, the types of activities we might do are um, teaching children how to use tools very safely so we build up relationships of trust with children so that we get to know those children and what what they might be able to take on and learn. But this is all out achieve. in woodland. This is all out in woodland or, or another natural environment. But yeah, it's all out, out in the woods. Um, we'll be taking children out into the woods that we have here next to the mill ponds and we'll be um, helping them explore those, those natural environments and, and just getting past that disconnect um, that some children, not all, but that some children have now with with the environment around them now with the Ealing tide mill experience you're saying it was it was shut for three years for renovation so what was it before like a few years ago well Ealing tide mill opened to the public as a working heritage site in 1980 it had been closed for a, a, a two or three decades by that point and it was restored to partial working order, one water wheel and one set of millstones were restored. So it opened as a working heritage site in 1980. Across the road we had what was a local heritage centre. When we started looking at how old some of our displays were in both of the buildings, we carried out consultation with visitors and a lot of what we were hearing from visitors was that they really wanted to know more about the mill story. They could come to the mill and see how it worked but we weren't able to tell the mill's story here. We didn't talk about its history here. And that, that message came across very strongly to us. So um, as part of our refurb project, we've made the mill more visually accessible for people. So you couldn't actually see the water wheel and you couldn't see a lot of the machinery in the past. 
partly for safety reasons. In, in the 1970s, when it was uh, turned into a, a working heritage site, they obviously had to keep people safe from the machinery. And the way to do that <laughs> in the 70s was to, to, to keep people very separate from it. Today, we, we've got some great glazing uh, that we can use that, that is toughened. People aren't going to fall through it, but it can withhold the vibrations that we have in the mill when we're working. So, you know, we, we've moved forward and, and we can... Uh, offer that as an option now. So putting the glazing in really helps people understand the mill. But over in the visitor centre, it's a brand new offer as part of the site. We didn't have a visitor centre really before for the mill. It's very much um, telling the story of the mill in the local area and it also provides us with a, a new activity room. We've never really had an activity room before where we could do things like hold talks programmes, run workshops for schools, run workshops for families. So it's given us that extra space. Tell me about the workshops. Oh, we do a whole range of workshops here. Um, we have, um, during our school holidays, we have an offer for our, for our local and visiting families. Obviously, we're right on the edge of the New Forest here, and we do get a lot of people come to visit the New Forest during holidays. So it's not just um, local people that come into us, it's visitors from outside the area too. So in school holidays, we're always offering either a, a booked workshop or um, a drop-in activity where people can make a craft activity together as a family. So we do things like drop in and make and decorate biscuits. We'll bake them here on site for you. <laughs> um, sometimes we bring other workshop providers in. We did a great boat building challenge uh, recently where um, Dan, one of our friends, came in and uh, Dan's a freelance museum, museum educator and he did a great boat building workshop. So families could work together with a budget and they had to choose what components they wanted for their boat and then we tested the boats in a tank at the end of the workshop it was great fun. Uh, we've had um, 3D printing workshops. Um, we've had um, textile printing workshops. We, we try and look at links to, to things that we have in our own collections here. So like flower bags and textile printing or um, technology and 3D printing, that kind of thing. So do you have any of the original flower bags? We've got some. We've got some quite old flower bags, not of original ones from Ealing. Um, what we do have are um, some of the old receipt books. So we've got oh. a couple of old receipt books from sort of late 1800s. Oh, um, we've got one upstairs on display. We've got some pages from another in our archive, um, and we've we've got a number of the last receipt books unused um, that the Mackerel family had as well. So I mean, going back um, 800, 900 years, what would they have put there? What would they put their flower in? I mean, that wouldn't have been... I mean, I think of things like jute, but that probably came later. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, that's a really interesting question. I'm not actually sure I know the answer to that. That's that's what, one of those new questions that I've never been asked before that I need to add to my list and find out about. <laughs> there, there is possibilities uh, that... Some people think that the Romans brought tidal power oh. here. So it, it, it is a fairly old... Um, uh, form of technology. Um, there are certainly some very old archaeological evidence in Ireland of early tide mills, and sort of around the fifth or sixth centuries, around that, that period. Now, you also, in uh, wearing another hat, you also do a lot of work with objects in just that way. Yeah, I do. Yes, I, I uh, deliver what I call object-inspired reminiscence. Um, a lot of people working in museums do this. I, I started doing it working in a in um, a, a museum earlier in my career and I've now sort of built up my own collection um, and I do it a little bit freelance so um, object inspired reminiscence is about taking objects from within living memory 
um, and just using them as memory triggers. There are lots of different types of reminiscence. Some people um, deliver drama reminiscence. Some people deliver writing reminiscence, creative writing reminiscence. Um, because I'm a museum bard, I always use museum <laughs> objects. That's sort of where my experience of reminiscence has, has come from. So I'll take my collection into care homes and um, so with elderly people? Absolutely, yeah, 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 with elderly people. Often, I really try hard to encourage the care homes to do something on a Saturday when families are going to be in visiting their older relative because it's great to do reminiscence with a mix of age ranges because it, it just gets a great conversation going between older and younger people. So tell me about yes. So tell me about some of those objects. Well, the, the sort of objects that I um, that I've collected that I use. Some of them I've bought over the years. Some of them I've inherited over the years. So things like 1950s radios. Um, souvenirs, seaside souvenirs from the past, from you know seaside towns, um, toys, toys from the past. I've got a number of old dolls that were my mum's that I take into um, care homes. Um, even just things like tea sets and you know um, little milk jugs with those little crocheted sort of lacy type covers with the beads on the end to stop the flies getting in the milk. Things like that that we don't necessarily use today. If things with um, smells, I use smells quite a bit, so I have smell jars of different types of tea, loose tea that you get a really strong smell from. Um, furniture polish, old style furniture polish is another really strong one because smell is so rooted into memory for us. Um, they're, they're literally memory joggers. Um, one of my, my best objects is a, it's a toy vacuum cleaner, it's a toy hoover vacuum cleaner. Um, it's not very big, it was made in the probably late 1950s, but it's an exact toy of a 1950s Hoover vacuum cleaner, <laughs> one that most people remember um, having themselves. So that, that's a great one. You know, everybody has seen, everybody's seen the vacuum cleaner um, in the house when they were growing up or when they were still living at home. So I take them in and they're literally memory joggers. The idea is that I don't do much talking at all. The idea is that these are memory joggers and People, we hold them. Touch is a really, really important um, sense for us. More important than really we've ever understood. It can, if we don't have the right kind of touch as a child, it affects your cognitive development. It affects your digestive development. It affects everything. Touch is very important, and um, it, it continues to be important throughout our lives. It helps ground us. Helps connect us to everything around us. So, touching those objects from the past is quite an important thing so they hold those objects and share stories and share memories and we just have discussions you must really see i mean there'll be these elderly people who are in the home probably well taken care of and and are able to talk to their fellow residents watch a bit of television and do other activities but you must see some real sparks happening you know that people suddenly become very interested and also are suddenly transported to another time in their lives, a much younger, perhaps more vibrant time of their life. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you, you might be sitting talking to a lady who's in her 90s um, who tells you that she was the first woman to work in an engineering firm um, and tell, she, she, she just starts telling you about her... Um, her life working as the only woman in a male-dominated environment in the past, which is, you know, she, that lady's a pioneer for her day, you know. Um, but you wouldn't think that, looking at a little old lady sitting in a chair. It's, it's a really good eye-opener and a really good reminder um, of the importance of everyone who's come before us to get where we are now. Do you find it quite moving? I find it incredibly moving. And I, what I find really interesting is that I often, I really often have the experience where I'll meet someone um, that I have a personal 
um, I have something personal in common with, usually geographical, which is really interesting because I'm from the south of Scotland. I'm not from the south of England. And I have met, I've met a lady who went to the same high school as me in Scotland. <laughs> I've met a lady who grew up on the neighbouring estate to the estate that I grew up on in Scotland. She, she actually knew um, a very elderly man who I knew. She knew him um, when he was the shepherd on her estate. I knew him when I was a child. Um, so I, I've had some really strange experiences where we found absolute common ground, uh, you know, decades apart, but we found common ground. So in terms of the objects, as you say, that some you've bought, some you've inherited, and of course we're in your day-to-day -day heritage work over the years or museum curating some of the time, uh, you'll have seen many, many different types of objects from years past. But would you say that, um, you know, when people have um, elderly relatives who might pass away, um, it's very important then to contribute or keep those objects for, for other people? I think in museums we, we have a lot of people come to us um, offering to give us objects. Um, if you're a curator like me, you want to take in everything, but you, realistically you can't take in everything because uh, you need to be able to dedicate care to every object that you take into your collection. Um, and that's always a, a big concern for museums is um, whether they can give the care that objects need to those objects. Um, so we're not always able to take objects in, but something that I always say to people when they're, when they're donating things, because often when they're donating, it's because they've lost someone in the family. They're clearing a house out or they're clearing an attic out. Something I always say to people is, if you can't find somewhere that wants it, it is okay for you to keep something. It's okay for you to keep something. You don't have to get rid of everything. Um, because often people kind of feel like they need a bit of personal permission to hang on to a bit of the tangible past that's of no use whatsoever other than it reminds them of someone. That's interesting. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because of course, for it to be a tidal mill, you're right by you're right by the sea here. I mean, if I look out the window, there's a whole load of small yachts there in the estuary. So, can you describe just where we're standing a little bit? Where we're standing, um, we're right where the sea meets fresh water. So, on one side of the mill is the seaward side, and that's a, a natural inlet that is kind of why this area was originally settled. Um, thousands of years ago, this natural inlet from the sea that moves up to meet the land. So sea on one side. On the other side, we've got our mill pond, which is where we trap our seawater to use. But beyond that, there is a small river that feeds down into our mill pond and out towards the sea. That's Bartley Water. So we've got a very kind of rural woodland area on, on the left-hand side there. And on the right-hand side, you're heading towards industry and Southampton docks and the big ships that come in to the docks there that we can see from Goaty Beach. When you think that some form of tide mill was here 900 years ago, the fact that it's in the, the doomsday documents from 1086. Um, what sort of connect, do you um, go on, I mean, perhaps I'm too romantic and go on flights of fancy rather than being have my feet on the ground museum curator among other jobs. Um, but here, as the community engagement officer, do you sometimes think back to some of those early millers and their families? Uh, I think about that quite a lot, actually, yeah. I, I, I think beyond that as well, um, 
I, th I think beyond beyond uh, the, the millers themselves. I mean, here in this area, um, the the earliest bridge that archaeologists have found in England is here, and that's a Bronze Age bridge. So um, we know that Bronze Age, and that they found the remains of a boat there as well, and a dagger blade. We actually have the dagger blade on display in our discovery room. So I th I think quite far back in terms of people and what this area has meant to people for a long time. Because even though it, it looks quite rural. Um, we know the impact of humans has been developing this landscape for literally thousands of years. You know, we had sultans here. Salt was a very important product in the past. We had sultans here. The, this, the boats that we see here today are lovely pleasure craft. In the past, it would have all been barges and ships. We had shipbuilding in Elaine. We know that coal barges came in. It was much cheaper to dock here than it was in Southampton, so we know we had coal barges coming here from the Durham coal fields. Uh, this was a real place of industry in the past. So yeah, I, I think about all of that kind of thing quite a lot, actually. I, I, I like the uh, industrial past that we have here. My thanks to Ruth Kerr, the Community Engagement Officer for the Ealing Tide Mill Experience. The actual mill building that's currently standing there is a lovely 18th century building. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.